0: In Ephesians, of course. Uh, tonight, what I want to do, I want to read through the rest of uh, Chapter One. We'll probably finish that off tonight, at least to some degree, until I think about something else I did touch on. And tonight, I just want to—I want to talk about the significance of the of the fact and truth that he is the head of his church, and that he fills that church with the fullness of himself. And there's great significance to this because this is exactly what Paul is talking about. The whole exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. And, and we talked about that the last time. Uh, but let me just read the verses first and begin there. Give us a starting point. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 19. Turn this up a little bit so that the folk at the fire pit can hear me. Uh, verse 19 if it's too loud i'm sorry it's uh, okay okay and what is the exceeding greatness of again remember this is what paul is praying that god would open their eyes to know open their eyes to see and give them spiritual understanding to know the greatness and the reality of these things he's listed. And as we said, these are not separate, um, isolated things. These are just the way he is speaking of salvation. So it's one salvation, one life, one man that he is calling for the souls of believers to come to see, and to come to know. Because these are realities greater than we can ever imagine. I mean, as we said a while ago, the Queen of Sheba, you can't hear these words you can't read the words on the pages of your book and be able to grasp the weight of the of those words you know we sit and we think about these things quite often and we look at it and we search out the words just to kind of plumb the depths of just the just the vocabulary that's used and it's uh You know, it's a wonderful study, but it's also frustrating because even the depths of those words can't convey the nature of the salvation we have. And so it's beautiful, but it's also very uh, frustrating to know these are realities. The souls of men are always dependent upon the divine work, miracle of God to make this. Known in our hearts so that we can see a salvation that is greater than we are. We can see an anchor that holds us when we are frail and can't hold ourselves, which is all the time, by the way. That we can see something that holds us in place when everything else around us is moving and we think that those movements, those things, you know, whether it's things that we do or don't do or people do or situations, All of those things, you know, all the movement that's around us, the chaos even at times. In the midst of all of that, and there's nothing as far as our state of being that moves with it. There's nothing that is altered in those moments. There's reality that holds us and girds us safely in the sufficiency of one perfect life. And that is exactly what these words say. It's the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe and again that is the most wonderful statement of the grace and mercy of god that can be uttered god in all of his power in all of his divinity could have done what he did, satisfied his own purpose, his predetermination, satisfied it all, and been happy with it, and had his son and complete and done, put away sin, and all of that stuff that he did, and he could be satisfied with it. But the beauty of it all, the greatness of it, is that it was in the heart of God not to just be satisfied with it himself, but to allow the greatness of that to be extended to us, to be brought to these earthen vessels, these weak, (laughs) broken vessels that needed such a work, necessitated that type of miracle to release us from the bondages of corruption and sin and death an imprisonment we could not get ourselves out of. This is this is God's mercy. This is his doing. And that's why this is something only God can show you. I mean, you can hear this and you can say, Oh, thank God I'm a, you know, I'm in Christ. Thank God I'm a believer. Thank God all my sins are gone. You could thank God for all of that, and we all do, but then to understand just the gravity of those statements and to understand that God has done this work in the midst of our weakness. In the midst of, I mean, we'll read in a moment, when we were yet in sin and dead in sin, he did this for us. We did nothing to warrant such love. But his great love toward us is the exercising of this power. That is, again, we'll read, to us who believe. It's in accordance to the working of his mighty power, and look where he ties all of this, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be. You hear all the all the he, him, his? This is exclusively settled in Christ. This is something God has done in him and, and nowhere else. And this is a reality, first and foremostly, Uh, uh, culminated in Christ and it has to be for it to be effectual toward us in any way if it's given to us as a a separate issue as a separate matter if it's something that God did and he says okay now God did all this now I'm going to give you salvation give you salvation no the, the beauty of it is and the thing that makes it certain and anchors it in eternity for us and, and in heavenly places for us, which is the holiest of all, we'll look at that too. What anchors it there is that it is first and perfectly embodied in this man that he raised from the dead, that he set at his own right hand in heavenly places. And he gave him a name that is above every name, gave him glory and, and power above all principalities and mights and dominions. That's who God has done all of this in, and that's the reality that he has brought into us. That's who is our head. That's who is our life. See, again, you know, people talk about the body all day long. Talk about the church all day long. Talk about believers all day long and tell you, you know, God wants this for you. God's going to make you live the best life and all of that. I'm telling you God gave you the best life when he gave you pride. Amen. 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 There is no significance to the body except that it is the body of Christ. There's no significance to a believer except Christ lives in that believer. The greatness of Christ is what makes it all real and eternal and perfect. God has never at one moment looked at men to find his perfection. That's Hebrews 2 all day long. We look at that man who was, you know, this is what he should have been, we we suppose, crowned with glory and honor and given dominion. He says, but we don't see that when we look at that man. But what's the answer? We see Jesus who is crowned with glory and honor. That's the answer. That was always God's answer. God's answer was not to have men who were glorified and perfect and righteous. It was to have one man in whom all of that is embodied, given to all men as a gift of mercy so that those men, me, you, could actually partake and benefit from the life of the one unto whom God looks and says, this is the one in whom I have found my rest forever. This is where my name will be forever. That's the significance of him as our head and of him as our life. And that's what I want to do tonight, just tell you how great Jesus is, how great our head is. And that's why the soul must behold him. Not because beholding him makes him great, or beholding him gives us a way to be like great as he is. No, beholding him just shows the soul that we are where we have always belonged. We are where God intended for the souls of men to find their Sabbath. Amen. If we could just find it in his face, we'll never be foolish enough to look at ours or anyone else's face to find the identity of our salvation again to find in we find god's perspective of all things when we see jesus because that's the one in whom he summed it all up i mean the first of ephesians said that nine and ten the first chapter that everything god did he summed it all up heaven and earth in one man even in christ and put it under what one headship and we'll probably read those verses too i'm sure they're somewhere but then uh he put him but far above all principality and power might dominion every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come and we'll talk about that phrase in a moment and it put all things under his feet gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And I'm again, let me read just, just to do so, just to show I'm not alone in this. There's several that actually do agree with this part. Uh, And Jameson Fawson Brown and says, when he raised him in that he raised him, this is the exercising of his power in that he raised Christ from the dead. And he says, this is, This is um, the power that involves, by virtue of our living union with him as members of his body, the resurrection is our portion because our souls are the dwelling place of the risen Christ. This This is the reality we've come to. Now, he'll go on before this. I didn't read that part, but he'll go on before this and he'll have to say this first. And now let me read that part. The raising of Christ is not only the earnest of our own bodies being hereafter raised up. We always have to put that in there, right? Because to us, that's significant. That's what it's all about. Most Christians say Jesus getting up from the grave. Is the down payment and the earnest that says one day we will too. And they make the spiritual reality of resurrection a sec- a secondary issue. Okay. This commentary, and most every commentary says these things. He gives much more significance to the raising of natural bodies, you know, in the hereafter or one day but what they make a secondary issue because they all have got to say that first but then they at least at least say metaphorically this is speaking about a spiritual resurrection that we are now experiencing as members of the body the fact is that's Paul's point and that's Paul's only point in these verses he's not telling you one day we'll get up too he's telling us we are the we are the body of the risen Christ that's the body god has raised up that's the body jesus said he was going to raise up on the third day Mm. there is no secondary issue here we're talking about this is the only issue christ is the resurrection of the dead you remember in the last session we dealt with this in first corinthians 15 and most people unfortunately when they hear first corinthians 15 preached or presented in any way they always hear the last part of it and they always take that to the future and saying you know in the twinkling of an eye and the last trump and of course that's one day it's going to happen we're going to hear a trumpet we're all going to be changed and we're going to be glorified and this mortal is going to put on immortality and all of that that's not at all what he's talking about If we look at the beginning of that chapter and stop divorcing a half of a chapter from another half of a chapter, we'll understand he's talking about salvation. He's speaking of the salvation that is brought about because Christ has been risen from the dead. And if he's not raised up, our preaching is in vain. And what does he say? Your faith is in vain and you're still in your sin. Because that's the issue. Then he goes on and talks about the two men. The first man, Adam, was of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord himself from heaven. The life-giving spirit, the one who gives spiritual life. There's the distinction. The hearing of the trumpet, then, is not about a natural trumpet or even a heavenly trumpet. It's going to sound and make us leave this earth. It's about the gospel, the voice of the Son of Man, declaring, I am the one who lives Come unto me that you may live. Remember what Jesus tells them in John, I think it's chapter 5, where he says, the time, the time is coming and now is where the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of Man, and those who live, or those who hear his voice, shall live. That's what the trumpet is. It's the hearing of this life-giving one that will bring us up out from the death of the first man, Adam, who is of the earth, earthy. And if he's raised up, that is saying he is the resurrection that will call to the dead and those who will believe will have his life dwelling in them. And then at that moment, this brought to pass those words, mortality has put on immortality, that is death is put on life. Corruption has put on incorruptibility. When does that happen? When we are born of God. That's when that happened. That's when we are born of incorruptible seed. Words mean things. And we totally disregard the words that are written in other verses because we get fascinated with our concepts of these verses because they sound really cool and futuristic. No, they're awesome because they're declaring a present and perfect salvation embodied in Christ who abides in you right this moment. What that means is we don't have to wait one day. We're in the resurrection that was longed for, that was waited on, that Martha herself said, yeah, I know. He'll live again in the resurrection, and the resurrection says to her, I am the resurrection and we dismiss that and we make it an event still. No, this is the power that has been exerted and wrought toward us. This one has risen and he is now the voice calling to us. If when we are dead in sin to come and live, to be found in him, that he may be made unto us all spiritual blessing. That just as Adam reigned over us as head and brought death and condemnation, Christ now reigns as head and brings life and righteousness. These things are not insignificant. They They sound insignificant to most people, because we don't understand the greatness of his headship. We don't understand how great he is. So we just hear these words and we say, oh, that's wonderful. Won't it be better one day? No, it's not going to be better one day. It's, it's, It's as great right now as it ever shall be, because he is our life. This is how great our head is. This is what it means that he is the head over his church, which is his body, and fills that body with his own fullness. I mean, we're going to get into Romans 6 in a moment just to show you the power of this headship. But there's a verse I'll just read you to start you thinking about it. Anyway, this heater's drying me up. Um, it says, therefore, we are buried, this is Romans 6, 4, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, same thing he's talking about in Ephesians 1, even so we also should walk in newness life. That is that is exactly what Ephesians 1 is talking about that life in which we are accepted in the beloved, that life that has brought to us every spiritual blessing, redemption, forgiveness of sins, and inheritance. All of those realities are not separate issues. They are the realities that are embodied in the life of this one who abides in the soul. Amen. Therefore, we who are in him, because he is the one raised up from the dead, we who are found in him walk in the newness of his life. That's, you know, we'll get to the fuller body of that verse in a moment. But they embody the governing power of Christ in his body. Because his power, embodied, the power embodied in the risen, enthroned, anointed son, is exercised for us in the realm of an all-sufficient and sovereign life that abides within and brings to us everything God intended. I mean, look at these. Uh, there's a couple of translations here. Um, this is the author way translation of Ephesians, well, it's of all of Paul's letters, but here in Ephesians, he writes it this way he puts all things like subjects beneath his feet. And this Supreme one has he given as the head, his church, which indeed is the Messiah's body, which is filled with the presence of him who feels, now he's gonna use this word and we're gonna talk about this, who fills the universe with all that is therein? Now, beautiful. Okay. But he feels this is nowhere in the verse. I mean, you can look at this in any concordance, you could look at it in any of the original transcripts. There's nowhere ever that the word universe or anything like that should be used. Right? He feels the universe. What does that even mean? What significance is there to that? For us, that sounds great. That sounds much bigger. Oh, he feels the whole universe. <laughs> okay. We're going to read some words from Solomon that says Not only the heavens of heavens cannot even contain you, let alone this house that I've built for you. So the fact that we'll say, oh, he fills the universe, and that's now significant to us, shows us we don't understand what Paul is even talking about. We don't understand what it means that he fills his own body with his own fullness. No, we think him filling the universe is much more significant. No, it's not. Him filling his body is what is being declared here and is the significant part of these words. And if you read the way he words it, and I like the way he words it here, he says he feels it's his body that is filled with the presence of him who feels with all that is therein. You know what that means? For there to be anything therein, he has to be the one that feels it. If he doesn't feel it, there's nothing in it. That's what it means to be his body. If we are the body of Christ, we are already filled with the fullness of him. Otherwise, we can't be called the body of Christ. Everybody's still waiting on fullness to come one day. One day the fullness of this is going to finally come. Listen, there is no body. There is no church if the fullness does not already fill it. It doesn't exist. God did not design this to have a piece here and a part there. God designed this that in the raising of Christ, he would bring forth a body that is full and complete. That's what Paul says. You are filled. You are complete because you are in him who is the head of all principalities and powers. The problem in, Col- in Colossians, the thing he was warning them about was not that they hadn't received fullness. It was that they had not held to the head of the body to find in that head the fullness they have received. So they're being told you've got to sacrifice and circumcise and observe holy days, and you can't touch this, and you can't do that, and you can't, you know, drink this and you can't eat that touch not, taste not, handle not because men find great significance in those things and in the doing away of those things they find a great deal of holiness that they can boast in I've seen some humble people that are so humble they are proud of their humility but to see the significance of the head takes away all things for men to claim and boast in it takes man's right of boasting away except in the greatness of his power that has come to us the greatness of the mercy of god that has exerted itself toward those of us who have believed so that we can boast in that work and in that sufficiency and not in ours. so when he says that he has been given a name That is above that has been highly exalted give it a name all above all that is named it says in this age and in that which is to come and does people read that and they take it again into the future but does not mean now and way off in the future there's a statement in Jewish history in the they used to use these phrases this age and the age to come they would use those phrases and The Jews spoke of that period before the coming of their Messiah. They would always speak of that as this age. And then they would speak of the age that was coming and that would be introduced at the time of the Messiah's coming and his presence thereafter as the coming age. So what Paul is actually saying there is he is taking both of those ages in that which looked for the Messiah and that which is the culmination that comes in the Messiah, that age and the age that was coming. And he puts them both together and shows that Christ is the one who culminates both, that he is the culmination and the end of one age of expectation. And he's the embodiment of the age where the expectation has been realized. And in so doing, God has highly exalted him. Given him a name that is above every name. Why? Because he's the only name that mattered. Amen. He's the only thing that matters here. God has found his end. The both the end and the beginnings, right here. That's what it means. It's not saying, oh yeah, he's he's that one day too. No, he's that all the time. He is the end of it all. He is the culmination of it all. That's the power that has been exerted toward us. Do you understand? When we're born again, we are indwelt by the end of all things. We're indwelt by the very culmination of God's ultimate intent and his eternal purpose. Hallelujah. And then we're still worried about all of our do's and don'ts. And where do I fit in the picture? Who gives a flip? (laughs) You're in Christ. You're his body. He is the head of this body. The significance should never be in the head, whether corporately or singularly. It should never be the body that takes any thought of themselves and says, what about me? No, that answer was given when you became the body of the one who feels you with his own fullness. When he filled you with his fullness, guess what that meant? You don't have any fullness except him. And you never will. And God took care of the whole process of it by saying, just like that, in the moment in twinkling of an eye of new birth, you were filled with his fullness. Therefore, you are his body. Holy. Because there's no difference. There's no distinction. You don't get a half-filled body of Christ. Unfortunately, my body's filled up with Raven, right? <laughs> His body's filled with him. What's the problem? That body does not know the head. That body's ignorant of its head. That's the problem mostly. That is why Paul's prayer in the context of this is I want you to see this one. I want you to know this man because this is where it's all Realize this is where the end of the matter is. This is where salvation is defined, not in your works, not in yourself, but in this one whom God has gifted to you as head. As Queen of Sheba said when she saw Solomon, I know that God loves these people because he made you their king. Well, there's the love of God toward us. He's made Christ our king. He's made Christ our head, and that's the love of God, and there's no greater love than that. There's no greater love than his sufficiency abiding in these insufficient vessels. There's no greater love than that. And the whole orientation of the soul must be directed upon looking to see the greatness of him. Again, the greatness of him abides. The fullness of him is present. That's not lacking, never shall be. But seeing him is what makes your soul capable of resting in the knowledge of that and stop fighting it. And stop trying to get God to relate to you in some other way when he has already related to you in the most significant way possible. And all he does now is call you to come and know and see what he's given I mean, this is what he's already said in Ephesians 1, verses 6 through 10. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he's blessed us, which he blessed us in the beloved. We read King James, we read the word accepted, and we read the word accepted, and we think about us. No, to be in him is the blessing of God. That's the blessing. You remember the promised blessing of Abraham and all of that? That takes in all of that. It takes it all in. Here's the blessing. You're in the beloved. That's what it means to be spiritually blessed with every spiritual blessing. You're in the beloved. Why? Because God has endued him and given him all things. The fullness of God dwells in this one. And because you dwell in him and he dwells in you, you're complete. But nowhere other than in him. You see how it's all him? It's all about him. This whole thing is about him. There's never a moment where it's been about us. It's about him. And the love of God toward us is that we are his body. We are found in him. He is our life. He's made unto us all things because they're out of our reach. And they're always out of our reach. Any spiritual reality at all is above my pay grade. I can't get there. I can't do it. And God knew it. And He still knows it. He didn't put the burden on you to get it. He has given as a gift what you could never give yourself and attain. And I know I say that a lot and I apologize. And then again, I don't. It needs to be declared. Thank you. People need to know. The weight of this is not on you. The weight of this is the fact. The eternal weight of this is glory abiding in you. You you don't have anything to prove to God because he's not foolish enough to think you can. This is all about his mercy. It's never been about him that runs or wheels, but of him that shows mercy. That's all. It's all the pictures in the old, it's all about that. So he's blessed us in the beloved. In union with him through the shedding of his blood, we are set free. Our sins are forgiven. This is in accordance with the wealth of the grace that he has lavished upon us. This is again, Ephesians verse 7, 1 verse 7. Um, verse 8 now, he has lavished on us in all of his wisdom and his prudence or insight. He has made known unto us the secret of or his mystery, which he, in his his own will, he designed beforehand in connection with the Messiah, meaning everything he designed beforehand had Christ in view. Always about that. And that will he put into effect, this is verse 10, he put that will into effect when the time was ripe. This plan, this is the complete Jewish Bible I'm reading from, when the time is right that's that's significant that the jewish bible says these things uh when the time was ripe he put this into effect to plan everything in heaven to place everything in heaven and on earth under the messiah's headship and where does that find its culmination he is the head of his body church This is significant because in the beginning, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he's going to be talking about the Jew and the Gentile. That's heaven and earth. and and Those who are of the earth, those who are heavenly because they had the law, that's the distinction he made there. We've already dealt with that in those classes here in chapter 1. That's who was brought into the headship of Messiah. That's the body of Messiah, then that body it doesn't matter if you are Jew or a Gentile. Why? Because the body doesn't identify the body. The head does. The head identifies the body. And because the head identifies the body, the natural original makeup of the members of that body absolutely means nothing. Oh, female, female, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. Who does God look at? The head. That's why on the head of the high priest and the holiest of all was holy unto God. Because he looked at the head to see holiness, to see perfect righteousness. He looked right there. Because when he went into the holy of holies, guess what he didn't have on him? The breastplate. That had all the names of Israel. He didn't have that. He went there himself. He went there just with that headpiece on so that God could see him first and accept him exclusively. And then he comes out and he puts on all of the garments of beauty and glory that has their names on his chest. And he shows himself to the people who are waiting on his appearing. And he shows them heaven's view of their salvation and their atonement. What do they see? They see a man in whom they are found, in whom their names are written. Gives a whole new meaning to the Lamb's Book of Life and the name being written there, doesn't it? There's the man. God saw that man. They saw themselves found in that man, God saw that man. And in that man, he received all who were be found in him. And when they saw him living, risen, out coming out of heaven and showing himself, they saw their salvation. But God had already seen it in heaven before they did. And then in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, he's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that all things, that in all things he might have the preeminent. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, that's the same thing we just read in the, First chapter and verse 9 and 10 of Ephesians, verse 21, Colossians 1, And you that were sometime alienated enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreproachable in his sight. How in the world is that ever going to be said about us? How can that be said about me? You know how? He's the head of his body, the church, that's how. The head gives to his body the identification of himself. That body has nothing of its own, no identification before God of its own. It doesn't stand naked in front of God it stands clothed upon with Christ it stands as the place of his dwelling Mm -hmm. the place of his fullness and it is not known of God in any other way that's what it means to be known of God to be known as his body to be known as that which is named by his name and filled with his life and we you know poke out a hand here and say hey me too Jesus no there's no use too to this. I'm sorry. It's not how this works. People under the old covenant, when they would do that and say, hey, me too. Guess what they did? They died. Mm-hmm. They got stoned, thrown out of the camp. That's the same. That's a picture. Nothing outside of this body, this man, lives. Nothing. And that body only lives because it's filled with him. That body only has significance because it's his. So how is this greatness of Christ? And I'm going to skip over a lot to get to some things here, but how is this truth? How is this the truth with regard to us? Again, he's the head of his body. He fills that body with his fullness. The fullness that belongs exclusively to him. That's the the particular thing I want you to get. The power, the glory, the holiness, all of it belongs exclusively, exclusively to him first. And then the power toward us is that he lives in us as the fullness of all things. Every spiritual reality, He's in us as the fullness of it. Now, let's look for just a minute, because there's some things I want to get as far as we're going about to get there with Solomon, because this is a this is a picture of the kings, the kingship. We're going to see how how this shows not only headship but kingship. Romans five talks about it too. But in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, this is the place where he has spoken in son. God, who spoke in many times diverse ways to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. The word in should be there, in his son, whom he hath appointed the heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. Who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his own power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. What is that name? The name that is above all names. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, but the son, to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companion. You see the exalted nature of this son who abides in us, who is the head of his body? This is not going to happen. This is the reality of our salvation. He is the head of this body. He rules and governs it with his own fullness. So it shows here he is the anti-type, which means the fulfillment of the type pictured in Solomon. He is the one that would sit upon the throne of his father. And we could go through Psalms 45 and see this same thing where he is anointed with the oil of gladness, just like it just said in in Hebrews 1. But that's a testimony or that Psalm is actually speaking about Solomon. And he uses this language in Hebrews to show that its fullness or its fulfillment is the true head, the true king. The greater than solid. And see, that's why, and this is the thing we have to see. That's why he who builds the house, as Hebrews 3 will say, is worthy of much greater honor than the house itself. And then he says, What about the house? Which house you are? Right? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 2 who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man, speaking of Christ, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are. There's the one worthy of all the glory and the honor. The one who built the house. The one who came and actually constructed the house that was always in the heart of God. You see the picture. Now, I want you to see the picture in the testimony. This is in 1 Kings, chapter 8. This may be as far as we get in these verses. I'm going to read a lot. We'll stop and point out a few things. 1 Kings, chapter 8, verse 5. We'll read through verse 17 first. King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, who had assembled before him, were with him before the ark. Sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Now this is at the when he had finished building the house and he was uh, dedicating the temple, the house that he had built for God. And then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark in its pole. The poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. That's significant. That was a deliverance brought about by the Lamb. The memorial and the reality of that is now in the holiest of all. The thing that secures that deliverance is in the holy of holy. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister. Because of that cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled that house. I see most people are still longing for days and times where they could see that happen. They want to see the glory of the Lord appear and fill a house, fill a room. You see, this is a picture of the house that he built. This is a picture of the house that Christ built. This is a picture of his body, the church. And that church, that house, when it is finished, as it is, is filled with the glory of the Lord. See, that makes me think it's very significant to be the body of Christ. It's very significant to be his house, to be the temple of the Lord. Verse 12, Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Listen to these words. This is about him building a house. Again, the the body of Christ. This is a picture. We're going to see how all of this connects to Ephesians chapter 1 and what he writes at the end of it in just a moment. But listen to these words. Listen what he's expressing this house and its building to be. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who hath, with His hand, fulfilled what He promised with His mouth to David, my father, saying, "The day that I brought my people, uh, <clears throat> that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that not my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel." Now, it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, verse 18, the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house. It's what we're talking about before we started recording. But your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. It's glorious when you you think about this. When Jesus comes forth in the resurrection, what does he say? This day have I begotten thee. son shall be born. He shall build a house for my name. There's the picture. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For listen to the word Solomon says. The Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made because I have risen in the place of David, my father. And sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when He brought them out of the land of Egypt. You see that? How did God fulfill his promise to David? How did God fulfill his promise to Israel? This is the very thing Paul was preaching to them and why they arrested him and brought him up before King Agrippa. I have built a house. How? I have risen in the place of my father David. You see the picture? You see Ephesians chapter 1? God raised him up and given him a name above every name and made him head over the body. And in in doing what? He fulfilled his promise that he had made. And he filled that house with his own covenant. Remember, he says it in Isaiah 46, I will give you as a covenant to my people. There's the covenant that fills the house. I have risen. There's the raising up. We'll see what Paul or what Peter says in Acts here in a moment, but we're going to keep reading. First Kings chapter eight, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? A question. Behold, Here's the whole universe thing. Behold, heaven and the highest of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built you. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant. Listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said my name shall be there. There's the place of his name being exalted and greater than any name in his house, that you may listen to the prayer of your servant who is offered toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and the people when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive us. Now, as Solomon finished offering this prayer and plea, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven, and he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the God who has given rest to his people Israel. See, this is the context in which the true house of God is built. The rest, that only the Solomon of God, the Jedediah of God, which is another name Solomon was known by, and that Jedediah actually means beloved of God. There's the beloved in whom we are accepted. This is the greater than Solomon. This is a whole picture. He has given rest to his people Israel. According to all that he promised, not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses, his servant. Isn't that what Paul says to them? I'm not here telling you anything different when he's declaring to them what? The resurrection of Jesus. He's telling them, I'm not telling you anything different than what Moses and the prophets said. I'm confirming it. I'm confirming what they said because I'm declaring unto you the resurrection. And in the context of that, he says, everything you work in the temple for, everything you're waiting for, I'm declaring to you, it is realized in the resurrection. Why? Because in the resurrection, he brought forth an altogether new house, an altogether new temple, just like he promised he would, an altogether new creation and brought into our hearts an altogether new covenant. Now, chapter 9 of 1 Kings, verse 1. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time. As he had appeared to him in Gibeon. And the Lord said, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me, and I have consecrated this house that you have built. I've set it apart, made it holy, and I have put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that's changed? There's no temple right now in in the land of Israel. There's no king sitting on a throne in Israel. Are these words no longer significant? Do they no longer mean anything? Of course they do. God has fulfilled this reality in the raising up of the greater than Solomon and in the greater than Solomon raising up a greater spiritual temple and in that temple his name is there forever his heart is there forever his he, he has consecrated that house by filling it with the fullness of his king of his own present, of his own life now you can see the there's another picture of this in um Second Chronicles chapter five and chapter six, you read those verses, it's basically the same, the same thing, same building of the house. In Acts chapter 13, to bring this to what Peter says. Oh. For this Paul. I can't remember. Paul or Peter. Acts 13. 29. And when they had fulfilled all that was written, they took down Took him down from the tree. This is, of course, him preaching to them and talking about the crucifixion, and laid him in a sepulcher, but God raised him from the dead. And he was seen by many, seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you the glad tidings, how that the promise which he made unto the fathers, remember what we just read. The promise he made unto the fathers, God has fulfilled the same unto their children in that he raised up Jesus again. As it is written in the second psalm, thou art my son this day have I begotten thee. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus says this. He said unto them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then said the Jews, 40 and 6 years was this temple in building, and you'll rear it up in three days, but he spake of the temple of his body. Which body do you think he's talking about? Which body do you think he's talking about? He's not talking about his natural body. He's talking about the body he raises up. The body that is filled with the glory, the body that his church is. There's the temple, the greater temple. There is a greater temple. That is the temple that is filled with the fullness of the resurrection himself. You see how significant it is to be his body? How significant it is that he is the head of that body? That he governs his house, fills his house? This is the one raised and crowned and exalted. This is why he's the head of his body, not the instructor of his body. That's why he's the head of his body and not just the pattern for his body to follow. He did not come to set a pattern in his death, in his life, in his resurrection. He didn't do that. His ministry, his lifestyle was not a pattern for us to follow, to imitate or emulate. He lives in his body as the one who died to sin, who fell into the ground and died. He is the one who was raised up by bringing forth a full increase of the fruit that pleases the Father. That was him. I've had people tell me. Well, they weren't foolish enough to tell me but I had them tell me what they told others. They use verses like that. Seed fell into the ground and died. Unless it dies, it abides alone. And they'll tell people that to do what? To say, hey, you're here. You're in this place to die as a seed falling into the ground. That's what you're here for. Tell you right now, that's a theological term I like to use is baloney. (laughs) Don't let any man tell you those things. Don't let any man take a verse that is absolutely, exclusively declaring Christ and what he did, and who he is. There's only one seed, and you're not it. There's only one seed that could fall into the ground, die, and bring forth much fruit. And you're not it. We twist these things because we don't see the significance of who he is. We don't see the significance. So, hey, we can apply that to ourselves. No big deal. It is a big deal. It's a very, very big, dangerous deal. Amen. None of the things are a narrative that we can apply to ourselves. It's a declaration of the greatness of Him and who He is and what He did. And the beauty of it is that we can see what He has done and and, and see the great significance that He has done this so that He could raise up His body, the church, and fill that body with the fullness of. That's the greatness of this. If that rings hollow to you, pray and repent. That is not hollow. That is the greatness of Christ. That is the government of Christ in his body. And that is what we have now come to. We have come to the one who governs it, who feels it, and whose name is there forever. The name that is above every name. Now, let me see one more thing, then we'll stop. Didn't quite get all the way where I wanted, but that's okay. Isaiah 61. This is Jesus as the Messiah. This is when he goes into the temple. You know, in the Gospels, he reads these words out of Isaiah, declaring himself as the coming Messiah, or as the Messiah that has come. So in verse 1 of Isaiah 61, I want to read you this. We'll read through, uh, yeah, verse 4. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. There's the anointing with the oil of gladness. We'll read that too. The oil of joy, the oil of gladness. That came, the anointing of the oil came upon kings and priests. Well, he's both, king and priest. He is the priest that sits upon his throne. He has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. That's the poor in spirit. We dealt with that when we were going through the Matthew chapter 5. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, as captives under sin, corruption, liberty, yes, freedom. Stand fast in that liberty. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor or the year of jubilee, where all the slaves went free in the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all those that mourn and to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. We can stay on all of those. There's the garment clothed with Christ. That's the garment of praise that garment of praise is not us lifting our hands and singing song. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that they might be glorified and they shall build the old wastes. They shall raise up the former desolations and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations and generations. You might remember Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 24 um, when he speaks of the Jews who had refused him and rejected him. And he's speaking of the time and he says to them, your house remains desolate. Your house will be left desolate and wasted. Here the whole point of the Messiah's coming was what? Raise up former desolations, build the waste places, repair the waste cities and the desolations of many generations. How does that correspond? Because out of the ashes of a former system that was destroyed, not just in 70 AD literally, but the cross destroyed it. The lamb put it away. Before ever there was a 70 AD, there was a cross. That temple was rendered insignificant the moment the cross happened. That's why the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom. God did it. It started with him. He ripped it. Said, I'm over. This is done. This temple is now insignificant. That's the temple. He said in testimony, my name will be there forever. Why could he tear that temple? Be away with it. Let Romans come in and destroy it because he had a greater temple that he had raised up. He had a greater house that he had raised up. And Mm -hmm. what was that greater house that he raised up? It was the building up of the old wastes. It was to bring the former desolations to a repaired state of glory, to a greater state of glory. What did he say? The glory of the latter house shall be greater than that of the former. This is the latter house, full of his glory. That's the greater house, the house that you are, the body that he's the head of. That's what he did. That's why it says, I brought beauty for ashes. Not just talking about the ashes of the sacrifice, the ashes and heaps of a destroyed system and temple and tabernacle. He brought forth out of those ashes the beauty of a brand new temple and covenant and creation that is filled with him, filled with his name that exceeds every name. And we are that body. We are that church and he is our life. And Paul wants the church to see him. I want the church to see him. Amen. I Amen. want the body of Christ to see their head. Amen. When they see their head, the body is going to try to, is going to stop attempting to be what the head already is. Amen. And the body will be resting. Just like uh, Solomon said, hey, this is rest. You, this whole thing is about rest. Thank you, God, for the rest that you have brought these people. Because oh. I have risen on the throne. There's the rest. And the church will see the rest that God has provided. And stop warring with itself. Stop warring with a devil that's not even fighting because he's already defeated. Stop fighting something, you know, just punching to the wind just to make yourself feel like you're accomplishing something. There's nothing wrong with resting in the Lord. In fact, anything else is wrong. Anything else is not in agreement with the salvation of the Lord. So, that is why Paul prays for them to see. Because the significance of it will become more clear as we go into chapter 2 the next time. Because that's, the head of his body is the one that exerted such power that he could say, while we were yet dead in our sins, he did this. While we were still dead, he raised us up with himself. Yeah, wow. That's, a, that's power. That power. And that's the power that works in us and keeps us, amen, daily basis, holy, unreprovable, and blameless. Thank God, amen. All right, we're done. Thank you. So, Raven, I, <laughs> yes. I started uh, the school of Christ by T. Austin Sparks.
1: Uh huh. Yeah, I I'm
0: just starting, but he 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 made a um statement mm-hmm. um that before uh the fall God had a plan. Yes. And was that plan always Christ in you? Of course. The hope of, glory? of course. Yeah. Wow. God never changed his mind. He never made a plan B. It was always that. That's why Christ is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Um uh, that's why when, when Adam did do what he did, he clothed himself with a bunch of leaves. God's first act was to kill an animal and clothe him with the animal that he had sacrificed. Because again, picture of Christ being crucified and our being clothed upon with that. So yeah, I mean, he always had that picture. That's why the tree of life was always in the middle of the garden. And God said, You can eat that any time you want to. But see, there was a life. God offered a life outside of them that they could partake of. The enemy, the serpent, came and said, no, 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 no. Eat of this tree, and you'll know everything God knows. Who needs his life? You just know what he knows, and you'll be just like him. And so mm-hmm. what we do is we conflate the two and we think, okay, if I get his life, I'll know what he knows. And I'll be just like, him. you know, so we, we just screw the whole thing up. No, the whole thing yeah. is partake of a life that is not your own. And that ends the whole thing. It's not about you being edified in yourself, glorified in yourself or knowing or being, or it's about partaking of a life that doesn't belong to you as as Paul will say, that Mm. I'll find in him a righteousness that is not of my own. Amen. Right. Amen. You know, that's Mm. the whole thing. That was what it was all about. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, that was always the plan. Mm. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Amen, brother. Amen. That's good news. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, I like that kind of stuff. So you you made a statement at the end. You said that um, before when we were sinners, that he died, but then he was resurrected. So the body was already res resurrected even when we were yet sinners. Is that is that correct? Well, what? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, you can say that in a way. Our being born again is what brings us into the body of Christ. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, when he was raised up, then and this again, this is why it's so significant to know it was him first. It's his and it's him and it's his doing, and it's all consummated there. Before there was ever a soul that was born again, guess what? There was him. Christ. Awesome. Amen. Christ raised, Christ glorified, Christ exalted, Christ enthroned, and then that Christ who is now the resurrection of the dead because he's just defeated death, not just physical death, but the death in which men existed, death in Adam, death in sin. As the one who's now overcome all of that, he now as the enthroned king of God calls out to the dead and there's him bringing forth his fruit, bringing forth much fruit. There's the dying seed bringing forth fruit. There's him bringing to himself a a house, you know, a body, bringing many sons unto glory, as it says in, in Hebrews. But before any of that, before ever a man was called by the resurrection, you had the resurrection, and you had God pleased with that. And he had to be. That had to be the one reality that pleased God to the ultimate degree or else there'd be no reason for him to call to us. What does he want me there for? What am I going to (laughs) do? You know, what am I going to do to this picture? No, he has to have a complete picture, a complete work, his satisfaction fully realized, and then his mercy toward us. Come unto me. All Mm. you who are dead. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there was a, there was a resurrection mm-hmm. that calls to the dead that they mm-hmm. may live by him. So yeah. Amen. I don't add anything to this. You don't either. We when we come to Christ, we don't add to it. Mm-hmm. See, that's the thing. It was all complete sufficiently in him before ever a soul came to be found in him. Now Amen. how? Is that? Amen. See, what that says to me is it was already finished and perfect before Raven came along. So God doesn't need Raven to help do that. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's he good. Need no job. That's... Yeah. And guess what else? Rabin can't mess it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's all, all good news, man. Yeah, that yes, that is. Yes, wow. it is. Wow. My hands are off. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I Thank mean, you, you don't touch this. You can't touch this. Amen. Right? Amen. Ever, can't, yeah. can't touch this. If you do, <laughs> I mean, John talked about it, I think, in our podcast. You touch that ark and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Try to touch it. No you can't touch this God put it out of your hands. do not touch this don't put your hand on it. And most Christians or most preachers will get your hands all over it, <laughs> it but I'm telling you take your hands off of it <laughs> and enjoy the salvation that God has given you. because he you. Is, he is much more desirous to show you Christ than you are to see promise you that yeah yeah because he's already given you he's already given you everything you don't need Mm -hmm. anything but we do need to see what we have or we'll just start start looking everywhere you know looking for love in all the wrong places we'll look for it everywhere (laughs) you know and it's already fully supplied that's what paul's whole thing was if you would just stop neglecting the head in colossians from whom the whole body is fully nourished Mm. then you'll stop being swayed by the philosophies of men because you found in the head what they tell you you'll find in religion God's already provided it Amen 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 If everything's all hearts and minds are clear nobody looking around <laughs> <laughs> I'm bringing back some I oldies. Know. Oldies were goodies. Huh? We have all been baptized into religion. I mean, every- <laughs> you, you can tell. Everybody who laughs at that's like, yeah, they've been to church. They know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. Love you, Thank you. love you guys. Love you guys. Thank you. Good to see everybody. Yeah, good to see you guys. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. 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 Bye. Bye. Oh, oh, oh.